3: Not just historians, it's the grey-haired, suited men yeah. as the, the model of authority. And then you look at these women on television and they're all interesting, they're different, they're quirky, and I think increasingly that's what people want.
2: That was Anna Whitelock talking about women historians on TV.
4: An equality in how we express, describe and put history out there, whether yeah. it's academically or in a popular sense, tell the whole story.
2: And that was Joanne Fletcher on the inclusion of women in historical narratives.
5: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
2: Hello and welcome to our fifth podcast of March 2017. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. A few weeks ago, the history social media community was abuzz with a discussion about the role of women in history magazines, and indeed popular history more generally. It's a subject that we wanted to explore more fully, and so we convened a panel of experts to discuss some of the issues that had been raised. Our four historians were Fern Riddell, Yanina Ramirez, Joanne Fletcher and Anna Whitelock. And putting the questions to them was our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn.
6: Um, My name is Fern Riddell and I'm a cultural historian specialising in sex and suffrage.
7: I'm Dr Yanina Ramirez and I'm an Oxford art historian, a writer
4: and a broadcaster. I'm Professor Joanne Fletcher at the University of York and um,
3: I'm an Egyptologist. And I'm Dr Anna Whitelock um, from Royal Holloway University of London and I'm a, a royal historian, a historian of early modern history too.
0: Starting very broad, as experts who've had years of experience working in history, what do you think are some of the main challenges that women working in both academic or public history at the moment face in
7: 2017? Actually, I think the challenges are the same as they've always been for women uh, in as much as I think, well, I'm I'm a mother and I think that that has had a big impact on how much time I can work, how much I can justify being away doing big projects. Um, But I think that actually things are changing and there's a lot more in place to make that better. So, you know, I, I couldn't have had this job. I couldn't do what I'm doing now. At any other time, as far as I can see, social media really helps. So being able to reach out and talk to people directly, and wherever you are, if you are you know <laughs> changing nappies or loading the dishwasher, you can still stay on top of, of your publications. You can still do things. So, um, so I think that's all really, really positive. Uh, what do you think? Do you think
4: it's? I totally changed? agree. I mean, from the sort of maternal aspect, mm. it is this constant sort of juggling act i mean my daughter's 12 now but it's sort of uh, certainly in the earlier years it was it was a struggle to sort of do the teaching the museum where the media stuff write the books and and yet you you had to do that if, if you wanted to progress um and i think that is still very much underestimated mm. uh this idea that women should be able to do it all so easily and it, it's just not been a level playing field um at all
7: I think there's also an emotional aspect too, I think, because I think that there's that that element of being, I mean, this is something fair, that you're you're at the process of finishing your PhD, but there's an awful lot of self-doubt and anxiety that comes with being a female academic. Yeah. That you need to be everything, you yeah. need to get the yeah, job, yeah. you need to make the money, you need to be the best. And you're really hard on ourselves. I think know?
6: I think you are. And I think one of the I mean I'm single and I don't have kids. And I look at the struggles that my contemporaries who are PhD students who have come into it, having been wives and are sort of being mothers. And we all have our own struggles. We all have things that, that mean that you look at your life as women in academia and wonder, is this harder for me? Because, and it, it's hard for everyone, I think, mm-hmm. when you're looking at, at this, what the stresses and strains of academia can really put on someone.
3: Yeah, and I don't think that's necessarily kind of gender specific in lots of ways. I mean, I think obviously in all walks of life now, men are playing a greater role in terms of child caring and so on. But I mean, in my experience, actually, I mean, you know, I just think women are harder on themselves and expect more of themselves. Perhaps other people, whether it's in academic departments or the kind of wider media, expect more of women. But I know some excellent women. I mean, you know, young women, young academics that are now getting jobs are all singing and all dancing. Actually, you know, they are highly accomplished in terms of teaching, in terms of their research profile, in terms of publications. They're also good administrators. They want to have a public profile. They are incredible at juggling things. And actually, I mean, I suppose I would want to kind of add the kind of positive thing, which is although there are these kind of struggles and challenges, I know loads of women who are, you know, exceeding those expectations and flying. And actually, I mean, in academic departments, it becomes a bit of a a vicious circle because if you're too efficient and you're too good at things, then (laughs) people want to do (laughs) everything. And I think one of the things that women are good at, and whether it's because they have child caring responsibilities and other kind of responsibilities, they are good at juggling things. Um, and actually, you are—you know—you can be loading the dishwasher and tweeting, or you know, just do—you know—being walking on the street and doing emails as I do, which is really bad, um, and all of that kind of thing. And I think women are just good at it. But the problem with that is, there tend to be those people, individuals, women tend to be the ones who are looked to to take on positions of responsibility in academic departments, and so. You know, in a way it's a kind of problem of being accomplished and successful, I think. It comes down to drive a lot of the time. I mean, I think as a
7: as a woman, Growing up in the world I did, and yeah, you know, come from immigrant stock, and had very you know, didn't have much of a privileged background, and so everything I've got is been it's been graft and desire that's got me there. And when you add kids into the mix and all that stress, actually, it makes me more productive, more focused, more driven with every minute I've got, and I try to be better with it. But you know, do you think that's because we have to push
6: to do everything to be taken more seriously? Mm-hmm. Because that's one of the things that. As, as a PhD student looking at all the big named academics that I see, they are, you know, they're professors at 35, 40, they've got kids, they are publishing all these books, they're doing it, and they're juggling everything. And you you look at, say, a male peer, a male academic in the same position, and it's not that things come easier but there doesn't seem to be the same pressure to be shown that you are, you can do absolutely everything.
4: Mm. And you're judged very differently because you're doing all this juggling and you've got to excel at this or this or that and they will still find the chink in your arm or the stick Ooh, yeah. to beat you with. In my case, it's never been because I'm female because there's a far bigger elephant in the room because I'm from the north and I have an accent. Who knew? Even now, even now they use that. Oh, she's from Barnsley? She's doing that subject? Oh, she's a bit stupid, isn't she? And I get that uh, attitude, Do you and think that, that drives me crazy. The north-south divide, mm. the snobbery. Do you think if you are a northern man, it would be the same? It would be somewhat easier. It would be somewhat easier. But I just present them with this wonderful package of, <laughs> oh, which one shall we pick off first? <laughs> <laughs> and and sadly, a lot of the um, flack, shall I say, has come from shall we call them more established female Egyptologists um, uh, who who have got there and who are certainly not wanting anybody else up that career ladder after them. And so the big guns come out and it's bang, 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 (laughs) wrong class, darling, you know. So you just think, well, I can either agree and just go back and, Mm. you know, be all, oh, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to intrude in your subject, or you can just go, you know what?
0: You say that you have faced some backlash because you were a PhD student, yeah. but do you think that women are arguably who are doing these amazing PhDs or have these incredible academic careers are more reluctant to go into the public eye because they're women or not at all? Do you think they're underrepresented? Do you think, think they're
7: not? I think there's some really awkward issues mm. to address when it comes to the role of women in, in television, in particular. Yeah, be- um, I. I started doing TV, it was a complete accident. Someone actually Google searched Anglo-Saxon art and my name came up. And then, you know, six six years later, I'm still making TV programmes. But um, I, when I first went on, I, I was given no preparation. So I made this little film, Treasures of the Anglo-Saxons. We didn't think anyone would watch it, and it. ended up going out to about three million people and it was it did really well. But the next, I had no... No training, didn't know what I was doing. And um, the, when they came out that day, I didn't have Twitter, I didn't have any sort of social media platform, didn't have a website. there there was my mum started googling my name online and the hate comments that were coming through were unbelievably destructive my mum was just like don't read them don't read them but of course I'm going to read them then and and it's all based on appearance it was all you know she looks awful in that she she's obviously not the first to the salad bar you know really nasty personal comments and and I I just I this is something you said earlier Joe. there were two ways to go with that immediately afterwards I just got under the duvet I I don't I hate myself I hate this. I don't know what I've done, why am I doing this and then I just pulled the covers down and went right. let's get on with it and if you don't
4: like it that's this exactly it. it, I mean I don't do Twitter mm-hmm. uh, I, don't, I don't I don't even um, have a proper phone, I can't do You know, I don't even uh, text people I, I, I just do my own thing people like it, people don't like mm-hmm. it they say horrible things, yeah uh, and, and then you say, so it's like a girl, Mary Beard, I always remember that and it's I, the vitriol that, that women of Mary's calibre Presenting these amazing programs uh, that so many people like, and you get a handful of insecure men mm-hmm. who can't cope with this, yeah. and they start. And, and the men who were putting it out there in the public arena, I, I looked at images of all of
3: them and thought, well, I, I don't quite get where you're coming from. What, is this a level playing field? This is, I mean, I mean, you know, if you think about the sort of origins of TV history. I mean, it started off with, you know, A.G. J.P. Taylor. It was all about war. It was a kind of male preserve, not just in terms of like the men on t- you know television were the historians, but also the topics that they covered were kind of male, typically male preserves. And then you had, you know, when I was kind of sort of doing my PhD and I was supervised by David Starkey, who at that point was kind of, doing all his stuff. And I suppose again I had a decision. I was either going to go, oh look, you have to be a David Starkey to be on TV. Or I was going, oh, but I, you know, I kind of want I want to have some of that. And I kind of some of what, you know, I'm researching is as interesting as that. And so, you know, in a way I just decided, you know, why not? But I actually think uh, yeah. And so, you know, he was on telly at the time and Sharma was on TV. And they're kind of almost interchangeable. I mean, you know, they're kind of grey hair. <laughs> just middle-aged gray haired men actually they're more Give than me middle-aged Charmer now any day. you know <laughs> what? and I genuinely believe that we're in a moment of transition and I think because for good or for ill women on TV do have to kind of have a look and have to kind of justify their existence mm-hmm. both in terms of their expertise but also you know, why they, what their look is, what their kind of USP is. And actually, we can broaden this out, and it's not just historians. It's the grey-haired, suited men as the the model of authority. And then you look at these women on television, and they're all interesting, they're different, Mm, they're quirky and i think increasingly that's what people want i to think be guys are
7: going that way too. i think that's really interesting that you made that point because i think there's something really exciting happening which is actually uh, about identity now and i think maybe you could call it a postmodern explosion but since the social media uh, things have been happening over the last 10 years in particular you've got identity i said it earlier but it's about strong identity it's about people who just stand out and that's not and male that doesn't female. have to be yeah. male or
4: female it's and having it, the confidence it? to be yourself yeah. and usually people with confidence in the media tend to be gray old men yeah Uh, well they're doing politics they don't let's let's not start on politics but it's it's across the board and and unless we actually do take a stand and say well this is us this is what we do we've got something really brilliant to share and say wow look at this in whatever field of, of history in our case it's only then that other people can follow that whether male or female and the same with students to to nurture them and give them that confidence and say you can do this just be yourself say what it is you want to say and you'll be fine.
6: I remember. So I remember. I did my my I did my very first TV um, appearance for Coast, and I was so terrified. I was nervous. I'd gone up. We were filming up north, and I was working with Ian McMillan, and I hadn't done any television, and I was really scared. And I was like, "No, I can do. I can do. I can do it." And I went and threw up in the bathroom five yeah. minutes before filming because I was so nervous. But King. But my university. Had given me no guidance because they had no one who knew anything about media. They had no. There was nothing there, and so you really have to teach yourself. I think, and you have to learn.
0: Fern, you you've been involved with the BBC Academy Expert Women program. Do you think that this? the what what Anna was bringing up about the fact that women's voices are not necessarily seen as authoritative is that a wider problem yeah. with women experts on TV?
6: I think we all have to look at our favourite male historians who are fantastic historians: the Dans, Greg Jenner, brilliant mm. historians who are, who I have a huge high regard for. They don't have PhDs.
4: All of the it's women, like John th- Romer in Egyptology, he's yeah. a he's a giant, he's brilliant, but he's, he's he didn't come into it the, the, the standard way, you know. But all the women
6: do. God, and I've been yeah. told. I've been told. you're, you. We can have you as an expert. That's absolutely fine. But we can't have you present yet because you don't have your PhD. <gasps> and you talk about sex and women, and we need you to have that rubber stamp. Yeah, definitely.
4: you've got to have all the bells and whistles. Yeah. You've got to have every yeah. piece of armor you can yeah. possibly have. And Is even it, then, oh well. Are you sure? Isn't it really funny because <laughs> all
7: these things you're saying, I, I I've, I've been. they've been on the edge of my my peripheral vision, but I've never really sat and thought, yeah, of course, that's true. And I suppose it's happened subconsciously. Subconsciously, I felt I've had to build my armour up bit by bit over the years and and develop it myself. But actually, there is a trend, there is a pattern, and that is alarming, Um, and that's really interesting. But I also think think there's an element, I
3: mean, I think, you know, to kind of maybe sort of slightly cite the other argument, I think now that there's more women on television, and the women on television tend to be... I think, more accessible, more engaging than the men that tend to be, you know, actually the, you know, the women on television have also brought forth, I think, a new approach to television history, which is not just simply I am the authority voice, top-down, one perspective. You know, if you think about the history of Britain, it was the history of Britain, you know, which was great in so many ways, seminal series, but it was the history of Britain according to Simon Sharma. so right. It yeah. wasn't a multiplicity of voices, it wasn't kind of experiences, it wasn't a kind of braided narrative history, all of that kind of thing. It wasn't material culture particularly. All these things have been pioneered actually by women I think it that. depends what you what you're presenting and what're
6: what you 're talking about and what what the research is so I work on sex and I work on women. And when I first started, I was like, right, I've got to look really serious and severe because I'm talking about these subjects that people are going to uh, find a reason to attack just because I'm a woman talking about sex. And I realized very quickly that I was worse on camera, I was worse on radio because I was too restrained. Yeah, yeah. You've and got you to, be have to just be yourself. Well, I think that's the point. Yeah. I
3: mean, you were saying earlier, you know, actually it's not necessarily about the look. I think this is what's the golden age that we're going into, I like to think, where it's about individuality yeah. and actually it's about you know, and I do think women actually end up uh, maybe because they're sort of fighting the corner more. They all do look different on television because yeah. actually, you know, they want to mark themselves out as their own individual. So, you look. think we've moved past the point I where there's so. a pressure? From I mean, when into. when you think of like,
4: the, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm a bit odd in that I sort of work in a specific environment, sort of with an ancient Egyptian backdrop, and I would die a thousand deaths if I had to dress up in a pink frilly frock just to prove I am a woman (laughs) and be wandering around these beautiful monuments. I want the viewers to be looking at the monuments albeit with my dulcet tones wafting in and out, but to see the the, the landscape, the objects, the, the brilliant culture we're talking about, I don't want to be a distraction so it's the same look all the time. No, nothing exciting because why would I, you know? I was going to say as well about the, uh,
7: the idea that um, actually... It, it, you do maybe wear different hats. I do have different hats. So if I'm doing a formal Oxford lecture, if I'm in the Sheldonian, you know, I will not yeah. sit there in my boots and sort of hang out go, yeah, come on, everybody. But then the beauty of social media is you can then be yourself on, on that. You can let people know who you are you know, in, in a load of dimensions and, and television as well, depending on what programme you're making. If I'm making quite a serious programme, I made one on Julian of Norwich, which, which was a really personal story. In fact, going back to an earlier point I got an um, attack for it because the opening sequence myself and the director decided to have my kids in it and the opening scene is me with the, getting the kids ready for school and then going out on this pilgrimage it's supposed to be a journey but it was this idea of oh look mum showing that she's a woman right it's from the very beginning oh we don't want to know about her and her babies but the truth is that that was me showing an aspect of myself and and I think that depending on what you're making and who you're talking to and what audience you're speaking to you adapt yourself slightly to speak to them it's it's Basic teaching techniques, isn't it? That yeah. you teach to your audience, but uh, but I think that that's also comes from being confident and and not caring what people think about you. I don't care what people think about me, and and if good stuff comes my way, I'm really happy. But um, yeah, otherwise, it gets too personal. Yeah, uh,
4: because if if you all you're bothered about is getting that shot of that temple at sunset or that fantastic tomb scene, you're all working towards that end. And you just completely forget yourself. Yeah. It's important you're on it mentally, you know, verbally, but, you know, how you look, as long as you don't look like a complete wreck and, well, uh, but, you know, as long as you're there to do your job to present that information, that's it.
0: So, wonderful. Um, moving on to print media. Working for BBC History magazine, we, I've found over the last year that I've been there that we get way more article pictures from men um, all We get hundreds of books sent, sent to us for review and you can't deny that the
7: majority of them are from men. Why do you think that might be? I, I can tell you one fact for why I think more men are writing than women. And that is purely time because I, again, when I have my kids... I kept everything going. I kept my teaching job, kept to keep some money coming in. I would do the TV because I could go away for a few days. Kids could go to the grandparents and then I would make some money, put it back into the house pot. But the thing that went from the minute you know, my baby was born was my writing because I couldn't get that sustained time. I couldn't sit down at a computer and write a book because I couldn't clear my head enough. I was juggling so many things. And to write, you have to have that that sense of, I'm going to start at this point, I'm going to continue and I'm going to finish. Yeah. And it wasn't till my children were at school where I was able to carve out those six hours a day to sit and write that I was able to publish books. And um, and I think men have, uh, have the opportunity, even if they're fathers, to say, I have to go and write now. So I'm going to go to my study and I'm going to write that book that I need to write.
4: Uh, Yeah exactly that's exactly it, I I did a biography of Nefertiti, it took me a year, then I had my daughter, my next book was a biography of Cleopatra, it took five years (laughs) because you can't, you just can't just focus you know and I wouldn't have had it any other way but it it was very frustrating
3: I mean I also think though, I mean I I think, I mean, it's worth saying, obviously, you know, Ellie was talking about books that have come her way into the, you know, BBC History Magazine office over the last year, particularly. I mean, you know, there has been Anniversary of the First World War going on, which has, I mean, I was on uh, reviewing a a History Prize a couple of years ago for the sort of, you know, uh, for 2014. And, you know, the books that were sent, so many of them were books on the war, military books, and so many of them, you know, men tend to write still books about the war, military books, and... Uh, the books that, you know, traditionally sell in huge numbers. I mean, you know, there's a few people who sell really huge numbers of history books and people like Anthony Beaver, you know, that's one of them. Um, And uh, Ben McIntyre and people like that. So I'd like to think that in part, it's because of the whole, the First World War phenomenon. I mean, it's also important to say that, You know, when you talk about what types of, you know, that men are publishing more books than women, we're talking about trade books. We're talking about books that are going to be reviewed in the BBC History magazine as opposed to books that are going to academic presses. And it goes back to some of the things that we were saying earlier about, you know, to decide to publish a trade book, you have to be bold. You have to be prepared to put your head above the parapet because, you know, there is nothing more scary you know, you publish in a kind of, with a small publisher, it's going to be reviewed in academic journals that most people aren't going to read. Yeah. You know, you your book comes out and you have the, you know, the walk of fear to the newsagent on a Saturday and Sunday to get the newspapers and then you open it knowing that everybody's going to be reading and uh, reviews on your book. Yeah. And, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of reviewers tend to want to just promote their, themselves and their own books and their own opinions rather than actually generously review the book. And so often they just score points. And that's all very public. And I think that, you know, maybe women are slightly less up for putting their head above the parapet, being bold, being courageous, writing a trade book. I think, again, I think social
7: media helps because you get a sense on social media of how much it's like tomorrow's chip paper. Mm -hmm. Things turn so fast. And actually that's what women need to get is a sense of perspective Mm -hmm. about how... They don't need to take all these criticisms or comments or things personally, wash them off, let it go and build on it and go on. And it is a very, very hard moment. It took me right up until my 30s before I felt that level of like, you know what? I, I don't care what you've said about me, but it is, you're right, I think maybe there is that insecurity about do I do a trade book and get a bad review and then, oh, my God, my mum might read it in the Times on a Sunday morning. It's it's just to be bold, really.
4: Yeah, uh, yeah and also your motivation is 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 also something. I've, my last book was a, a History of Ancient Egypt because I was so sick to the back teeth of every single history of Egypt. Fabulous, though, they, I've just reviewed a brilliant one in, in the BBC magazine. Fantastic book. And, yeah, it it really struck me that every single ancient Egyptian was a man. It was (laughs) staggering. And I thought, well, I wonder what would happen if you actually had, you know, all ancient Egyptians discussed and female pharaohs. Let's have a few of, you know, actually tell the real story. And then you do get a very different kind of history. And it was so, uh, you know, I was so passionate about getting this down on, on paper. Um, and, and sort of that's been my sort of the, the direction in which I've always wanted to, to go. So, you know, biographies of, of women rulers and a history of Egypt in which women actually did, you know, uh, did crop up from time to time. that to becomes time. almost,
3: I mean, I always feel slightly conflicted about the fact that, you know, yes, of course, women need to be put back into the historical mm. narrative. But it's often the women that are writing about the women and putting them back in that narrative. Talking I mean, I remember the, the first <laughs> academic conference I went yeah. to was uh, I was writing on um, Mary Tudor and it was a women's history conference and I went there to give a paper and the the room was full of women and I just thought, oh, my God, is this what it's going to be like? Yeah. I'm going to be writing about women and people in academic conferences are going to be for women, uh, are going to be all women. And I just thought, oh, my God, I don't like this. I don't want to yeah. be that. And I feel really kind of ambivalent about that, the fact that yes. A... Women are the ones that are putting women back in the narrative. And then this broader question of the discipline that is women's history. Because I just kind of feel like that's kind of like... I mean, I get why they're doing it, and it's sort of like, you know, it's like why have a women's equality party. And I get the fact that you need to kind of, you know, highlight women and separate them. But by doing that, the whole point is they need to be situated back into the narrative. And some interesting stuff is now being done in in academia where we're having things like the history of the emotions, Mm. where actually... That's sort of absorbing both genders, but it's like that, you know, women's history, and then you have suddenly um, the history of masculinity, and it's like, shouldn't it all be integrated? Much well, that's more? that's the that's the strength oh. with Egyptology, though,
4: because it's not unlike um, the subjects you're all, you know, based in, in British history. Egypt is, I mean, I'm sort of home free because yeah. they were obsessively everything was balanced, male, female. So, so how and- can you tell that full story unless you have yeah. male, female? So all I'm doing is saying, yeah, let's just redress that balance tell the story. So I I do feel like I'm on the periphery of, of some of this because I'm sort of coming from a different angle if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. completely to different it. to but British history. I think
6: that's, history. that's a huge part of it. I didn't want to be a woman's historian for exactly that reason. When I started I wasn't going to be a woman's historian, I wasn't interested in writing about women's history. When you say women's
3: historian do you mean a woman's history historian uh, or uh, women yeah, writing
6: I mean, about women? I mean a woman who is writing about women's history. Okay. I didn't want to be a, 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 his, a historian of women's history and I've ended up as a sex and suffrage historian specifically looking at how women and how have negotiated victimhood and identity and, and everything else. And because I, st- I, started, I didn't start and wasn't trained in the women's history discipline, I think it does give you a different perspective on how, where you draw your conclusions. And I think, I think we'd all agree that every discipline has an ingrained way of looking at things. And that is a problem within the discipline of suffrage.
7: I was going to say that I think um, I come at a slightly different angle again. I mean, I got pulled into a debate recently online where um, it was Mary Beard was asking why are there no female history books? uh, And if there are female history books, why are they only writing about women? Now, my second book, yes, is about a woman. My first book was about saints and it was male and female Mm -hmm. saints, but predominantly male. And I at no point when I was writing that book thought I was writing about women yeah. I was writing about humans yeah. but and I was writing about an idea and I was writing about something I was passionate about so it never crossed my mind it's only later in my career that this idea of being a woman and being a female yeah. historian has come to the fore in fact I'm would, i I'm a bit like you Joe. I would just say that my femininity has never held me back it's never been an issue for me I've barely been aware of the fact that I'm in a in a gendered environment, because I would say I've got lots of other crosses to bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> being poor and immigrant. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Those to the back the that could go behind being like, a woman. Yeah,
3: yeah. But I say, so, <laughs> I mean, I remember, you know, when I was selling my first book, it was very much, you know, the press release was 20 something female historian, you know, yeah. gets to deal with Bloomsbury. And it was the same kind of time that Amanda Foreman, who, you know, respected female academic historian, she was, uh, selling her georgiana book with her naked with a pile of oh books um, in front of you know in front yeah. of her and it was this you know and i remember at the time people like david Starkey going you know women are just sort of frilly girl you know frilly history women writing about women and sort of very much their femininity being used to sell the books mm. now i think things have changed since then yes. because i think a a publisher would not have the audacity to suggest that and i don't think any woman would do that and i think you know and actually i you know i'm not criticizing amanda foreman i think you know whatever she made that decision at that time and i'm not sure that she would now but i do think things have massively changed
0: just to go back to the um, idea of women focusing on certain fields why do you think that has transpired in the way it has, and that we do see a lot more women, as you say, in royal history and social history, but we don't see women in military history and political history.
6: We do. We, yeah, do. we do. There are some amazing female historians. There's uh, Naomi Lloyd-Jones, who's a political historian, and um, Lottie, I can I can only ever remember her Twitter handle, Lottie, <laughs> Lottie Dia, who's a, a Labour historian, who's got a fantastic following on Twitter.
0: But arguably, I don't doubt that there are amazing women
7: out there, but
0: they're not getting think, the profile in the traditional. Yeah, I think routes. they
6: don't get the profile yeah. because, in the traditional. Because, because commissioners and editors and um, producers don't if they want someone to speak about economics or politics, yes, exactly. they require a male voice because male yes. voice has authority.
4: Oh, they d- and they don't want to pursue you doing a certain avenue. Like one of my books was Alexander the Great. Mm. I adore the whole subject, the, the military aspect. We're doing a lot of work with the Royal Armouries on weaponry in ancient Egypt. But again, because it's Egypt, it's esoteric and a little bit left field and yet we're doing lots and lots of work recreating the weapons, looking at the damage they can inflict and really going for it but the media has shown no interest I at think, all I think there's two, there's, uh, just to respond to what, what firms say
7: because I think actually there, uh, there is actually uh, it's about commissioning I think it's about commissioning on in the traditional routes so in the BBC or in television it, there's a traditional way of commissioning and making those sorts of programs in book publishing there is a traditional market who want to be satisfied with a traditional approach that i do think that we're in a bit of a kind of explosion at the moment because i think those traditions are breaking down and the fact that we can go off and do things independently and the fact that people can get followings yeah. without going through those traditional routes we've just got to see it come through i mean it's not just about you know
3: history i mean if you look at you know across the media you know when uh, voice, as you say, about contemporary politics is is wanted. It's often just looked for a man in a suit. Yeah. I mean, yeah. rather than you know a woman. Yeah. And I think you know, so the, in a way, it's you know what news media is the same as you know what people look to in in history and, and in experts. And it's you know in a way, society at large has to start to change its perception of what. Authority is, and what expertise is, you know. And this is a bigger question. I mean, this is about you know women's representation in parliament. This is about women in the media. This is about women in positions of authority. This is about the fact that you know all these kind of studies that have been done recently, where you know little, you know girls sort of or little boys have perceptions at three about who's the kind of authority figure and who's not. And you know the idea of that women have to have a certain voice in order to be um, sort of registered as a voice of authority. All of these questions isn't just about you know true of the field of history
0: can i just return to the the women's history field um quickly and say um sometimes there is an idea from some people that women's women's history fields in inverted commas are somehow a bit more lightweight or trivial than serious in inverted commas fields such as military history and like we've spoken about, military history, political history that are traditionally male. Is that something that you've ever encountered? Okay,
7: I made a series on the Hundred Years War and it was the first time that they'd actually bothered to invest in making it on television because it was too hard to do. And um, I was telling the, the ladies earlier about, about it. It was a horrible experience. It was really hard work, but I did it. And and my director at the time was saying, you know, are they going to be okay with the fact that this is a woman presenting essentially military history for three hours? And you know what? I did get a single comment on it, not one. I didn't get one person say, oh, you know, why didn't they ask that other military person to do it? Because it was a case of presenting the material. And actually what I did was I gave a cultural dimension to the military um, information. So, you know, all the battles, I could do the battles, I could do armour, I could, yeah, I could tell you exactly which part of the troops stood where on the battlefield. But let's have a think about the wider cultural context of this and what literature and art and music came out of this. And actually that was that was that idea of femin I suppose feminising the military history, but it, it was not it was not met badly. Um yeah. you know. I think
6: what I do is is almost the reverse of that, and that i 'm in suffrage history, but I study the suffrage violence, so i look at the, i look at the Boeings and the arson attacks and the the really extreme kind of almost domestic terror organizations that we see that suffrage was was doing in um twenty sort of in the in the the nineteen hundreds and it's it's challenges people 's perception of suffrage because they tend to think it's just women sitting there or breaking a few windows or or asking for the vote and when you actually look at the incredibly refreshing voices that are coming through in the field of women's history, in all fields of history that are female voices, it's really new, really exciting research that I think challenges so much of the traditional views because women no longer think they have to sit fit in a certain way. I mean, I know we've talked a lot about thinking that way, but we are seeing a huge shift in in people thinking, I don't have to conform Mm. and I can challenge and I can really choose a very different approach, and that's really exciting.
3: Well, then also, I mean, I think it's changing the perception of history as not, you know, taking the, the sort of spotlight off the principal agents in history, which, you know, if you like, they were men. I mean, you know, we can't be all kind in of... Be, cultures. In cultures. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I would tell ta- you, you know, yes, of course, and there are exceptions, and, you know, you talk about the Egyptian cult, absolutely, but, you know, if we're looking at kind of Western culture... You know whether we like it or not, you know m- men were the the soldiers, they were the politicians, they were you know the sort of i mean they were the historical voices they were the historical voices, and their voices are in the record, and they were the ones who experienced that and I think though that as we start to think, well, hold on a second, you know who was behind the scenes, what was the culture like at the time, and we look at history in the round as a sort of much more of a macro thing, then actually you know gender becomes less important and yeah. um, you know and maybe you know maybe we just have to accept the fact that you know whether we like it or not women are going to be the kind of uh, the vanguard women historians are going to be at the vanguard of saying actually you know i want to know what the experience of women was at that point but the next wave, which I think is coming on now, which are kind of like, you know, my PhD students and younger, you know, younger students, they don't sort of think, actually, I'm going to be a historian of women, and because I'm a woman, or I mean, I think they're just thinking, I want to look at the experience of, you know, the 1920s and they don't have a sense of, I'm going to look at men and women, they're just going to look at people's experience. So I think we are totally in that age of transition. I think we're in a massive age of transition in so many ways. I mean, I mentioned the changes
7: in media that are happening already in terms of communicating with one another. But in terms of we're historians right and we know patience patience things take time and the cycles of history take time to evolve but I feel in my own lifetime such massive transformations have happened and I think we're poised in the next 5-10 years on yet another massive transformation we have lived through the digital revolution as well we have lived through an extraordinary explosion of access to information and to voices and I think now we're realising that that it's about content it's about um, confidence and actually um, History as a subject is bursting out of the seams. I mean, I I would probably class myself as an art historian and a medievalist, but I I cross into so many different disciplines now I think we're also smashing through a lot of the disciplinary mm. boundaries and that's exciting and I think you're right and I think it's about like now people want to be a student of you know the medieval period or yeah. or yeah. they want to immerse themselves in a much more um, open way male and female but I think that's something media finds really challenging yeah. in that yeah. historians
6: are now spreading out yeah. across all these boundaries because they like to be able to put you in a little yeah. box so I've had um, well she's a women's historian it's like well no I write about sexual culture
0: one thing that's been suggested in order to get more women for example on TV
3: is positive discrimination I just wanted to see
0: What you guys thought about that? I think,
3: I mean, there is now a move that, you know, I think, I don't know whether it's official BBC policy, but that panel shows should at least have one uh, woman, you know, represented. I mean, I know, actually, because I was trying to put together um, a panel on Europe last year, a kind of public debate about um, Europe and the kind of of history of Europe at the time of the referendum, trying to get some kind of historical, cultural perspective. And it was actually incredibly difficult to get women on the panel. I mean, I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about, I need a sort of equal, you know, ratio of men and women. But actually when you kind of are looking for women to speak or just looking for experts to speak, it turned out that when I wanted a kind of range of voices in different kinds of disciplines, actually it was the men that were there. So, I mean, I think... With all of this, I mean, you know, I think there's a kind of line to walk between absolutely championing the cause of women and, you know, banging the drum. But I also think we've got to be realistic about it. And, you know, I think that there is now this, you know, over the last 20 years, women are pushing their way through. Women are now moving into senior positions. Women are finding their way through into the mode of being an expert. But there's still a massive kind of, you know, group of men that dominate, you know, and the ratio of men to women in sort of expert fields is still very much, you know, with women in the minority. And I just, so I think there's a kind of, we have to be realistic about it. And I'm not sure that positive discrimination, I feel uncomfortable about that, to be honest. I think it should be about expertise, authenticity. And I think if, as women push themselves into that role, then inevitably there's going to be a better, you know, the ratio will improve.
6: I think we also have to be much more supportive. I, I, I think we we do have to champion, but the people who have opened doors for me have been men because men have been in positions yeah. of power. Yeah. And the people who have challenged me and tried to tear me down have predominantly been women, apart from Piers Morgan. But it's, <laughs> it's you know, it has predominantly been women. And I think that that is something that we need to change okay. in, in the discipline and that you, you have to be more support. You have to, okay. because we have to claw so hard to get there, we also have to leave room for others to come alongside it.
7: What I've noticed is when I did feel quite critiqued um, at the beginning of my career and I was looking at who was making comments about my appearance, a lot of it was coming from women, a lot. I would say more was coming from women. So the problem for women on television, particularly when it comes to presenting themselves physically, um, is that men don't tend to judge men that much on their appearance women will be judged by men and women on their appearance. Yes. So it's double the impact. Yeah. And often the impact from the female side is kattier and crueller than yeah. if it was being directed at and men. Also, and we ha- can't allow for that. If we could finish on a note of
0: how we can, in the future, get more women and girls into history. So is it by focusing more on things that would appeal to young women? Um, finding more female historical figures that we can examine, or is it simply a case of making the male-dominated popular history areas, such as war, making them for women
3: and saying these are for you; they're not just for men. I, I don't. I mean, I don't know the official statistics, but you know, based on what you know, students that I have, women are doing history. I mean, I really don't think that's true. I mean, you know, women dominate um, in the classes that I take, and maybe that's because you know, I do kind of monarchy you know, gender, power, you know, maybe that. But, I mean, I think, yeah, I'm sure across the sector it, more women will more, more um, girls do a history degrees. So I actually don't think it's about getting more women in. I, I mean, I think, and this is where I think we have to now, stop you know when we're dealing with the next generation we like fighting the cause of women it has to be we want to encourage young people to value the you know history as a discipline see its relevance see its importance treat them as equals you know young girls and boys in what we expect of them what we introduce them to and kind of get over ourselves because I (laughs) just feel like you know, we need to kind of integrate ourselves and not be these kind of women who fight the cause of girls in, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's well, an equality. It's, it's an equality, equality yeah. in the classroom, exactly. on the TV screen,
4: Everywhere. in social media, but also an equality in how we express, describe and put history out there, whether yeah. it's academically or in a popular sense. Tell the whole story. Uh, so it, it sort of, uh, and then it sort of filters right through all the layers and I think in 10 years we w- wouldn't be having this discussion. And it's We'd look back
3: and, and, and look like a bunch of dinosaurs, <laughs> you know, like we're all <laughs> in so crinolines, old. you know. Yeah, yeah, Can you remember c- when we had that debate? <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I mean, just I think the bigger challenge is between people, you know, it's privileged and people that are underprivileged, people who wouldn't yes. see themselves as yeah. going to university. That's, yes, that's, where that's
7: my stance. That's completely yeah, exactly. my stance because I, I mean, I work for I, I work for a department that, that always gives people opportunity. It's an outreach programme that actually goes out to the people who are less privileged and I think you're right, I think we've got to stop it. I'm not a big tub-thumping feminists never have been but I think we're in a very much a post-feminist world we're not having to write women into the story anymore we did that the 60s did that they were written in forced in shoehorned into the story we've done it so now it's as I totally agree it's about reaching out to people who are not privileged who have not got access to the the, the information the love the passion of history that a lot of us have been introduced to. history is at its most exciting when it's about everyone
6: when it's not divided up into just men's history, just women's history, war, it, when it's showing you the whole diversity of everything that we can learn and what an individual's experience would be. Because no individual's experience is just theirs. That's so, yeah. all interconnected. And I think when we're, our history is at its best, when it's showing everything, when it's really showcasing
3: it. And also, I mean, I think it's important to say that, I mean, our you know, discussion of public history has been dominated by history on TV. But, you know what, (laughs) public history is about museums, it's about archives, it's about exhibitions. And you know what, I mean, things like the Heritage Lottery Fund, you know, fund incredible projects Mm -hmm. of people in local communities doing amazing things. And, you know, you only have to go to... Big or small museums on a on a in a half term or a weekend and there's families and there's kids of all ages going and experiencing stuff so you know we need to kind of you know not necessarily take the thermometer of the situation if that's the right take the temperature of a situation by looking at t- history on TV you know the number of people that are employed in the heritage and history sector both you know paid and unpaid is extraordinary. And, you know, you have to the growth of things like, you know, genealogy and, you know, passion of um, oral history and all of this kind of stuff. So actually, I think it's a very positive um, scenario. And when we actually look on the ground, it's men and women that are involved.
2: That was Fern Riddell, Janina Ramirez, Joanne Fletcher and Anna Whitelock. Do let us know your thoughts about this discussion on our History Extra Twitter and Facebook pages. Meanwhile, you can read a version of this piece in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale in the UK. Also in this month's edition, we have articles on the restoration of Charles II, a Tudor dictator, 19th century inventions, and America's entry into the First World War. You can get hold of the magazine in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside of the UK, it might still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. Find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash history US.
8: Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelphelp.com slash history extra.
2: Now, if you enjoy this podcast, why not vote for us at the British Podcast Awards? You can do so by heading to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote and searching for History Extra. And now let's rejoin Ellie Cawthorn for this week's history news.
0: The National Army Museum is set to reopen today, the 30th of March, following a £23.75 million redevelopment. The Chelsea-based museum, which explores the history and significance of the British army, has been closed for three years for the renovation. Five new exhibition galleries have been constructed and existing displays redeveloped with the aim of making the museum, quote, brighter, lighter and more accessible. New exhibits include the skeleton of Napoleon's horse Marengo, the robes of Lawrence of Arabia and the saw used to amputate the leg of the Earl of Uxbridge following the Battle of Waterloo. The museum's director, Janice Murray, told the press, I don't think that you can understand British history if you don't understand the history of the British Army. The British Army, in many ways, has shaped the country we are living in today. Admission to the reopened museum is free. In other news, a waistcoat belonging to the British explorer Captain James Cook has failed to sell at an auction in Sydney. No bids matched up to the item's estimated value of eight hundred thousand Australian dollars After Cook's death in Hawaii in 1779, the silk waistcoat passed through several hands. In the early 20th century, it was owned by Australian pianist Ruby Rich, who wore Cook's garment regularly, had it altered to fit her, and even spilt red wine down it.
2: Each month in the magazine, and on the podcast, we're running a series called Our First World War, which tracks the progress of that conflict 100 years ago through the voices of those who lived and fought through it. We've now reached March 1917, and here, talking to the Imperial War Museum, is Sergeant Jack Dorgan, describing his work as a coal miner, having been invalided out of the war.
9: Would the ponies be very tired when they finish today's work? No, never seemed to. No, I never gave it a thought. I mean, they they all seem so strong, these Shetland ponies. Strong, very strong. Very, very well-built, very short in stature, of course. We, we were not allowed, for instance... You see, every, the working place from the shaft could be a matter of two miles, two and a half miles, three miles away in, if the pit was an old pit had been working some years, as all the Ashendon Pits had been working many, many years. And we pony drivers used to lie on the back of your pony and let the pony, and ride the pony into your working place instead of walking.
2: That was Jack Dorgan. And now let's hear from Corporal George Ashurst, on arriving at a French village that had been occupied by the Germans.
10: When you took these villages, you met the village with the old people in, uh, did they say anything about conditions under the Germans? Oh, yes, they came out kissing us and throwing their arms round our necks as we marched in the road and kissing us and saying bon chance and all the rest of it, you know. And they said... Uh, the husband's like, come, sir, you know. What, well, the throat's cut? Ah, yeah. That's what the. that's the way they indicated did. They hadn't had them cut on them, but they'd taken them. You see, they got without them. Were there any stories of any atrocities? No, not really. Uh, not with the old folk. they just bundled them in these other villages you know, and let them live there. But, of course, I'm not saying nothing about the young women. We don't know what happened to them because they took them away with them. Except one fine young woman (laughs) in the the village of Nelson. Not Nelson. Uh, Nestle. Nestle, Nestle. that uh, milk, you know, used to have tin milk. All the lads said the tin milk come from there, because it was Nestle. And there was one body, young woman stood at the door there. Of course, we had an idea, she got away with it, she was been well in with the officers, you know. They let us stop there. And she was waving to us. And uh, came to a cutting, and he decided to make a little stand at this cutting. A few men, you know, in the cutting, railway cutting. Anyway, he didn't stop us. We kept darting here and darting there until he frightened him at finishing off. He went, and we got the cutting. <laughs> we got a little dog too, We shot a little dog right through the orange. It was trotted about, you know, but it had been shot and it would stuck with us for some time, that little dog.
2: That was George Ashurst. Look out for our First World War every month in BBC History magazine. OK, well, that's pretty much it for this week, but please do listen in next time when we're going to be talking about America's decision to enter the First World War.
5: Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.
1: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.